Welcome to the Get a Job, Here's How podcast, the practical how-to guide for women returning to the workforce, recent grads, and those looking to get the job of their dreams. Now, here's the founder of the Back to Business Women's Conference and your host, Katie Dunn. Welcome to the Get a Job, Here's How podcast. I'm Katie Dunn, founder and CEO of Back to Business and your host. I'm here to help you get a job, and I'm not just going to share advice on our topic in each episode. I'm going to tell you exactly how to do it, because here's how are two of my favorite words. It's get a job, here's how. Let's get started. Listeners, we have a wonderful show teed up for you today, and I'm really excited to be here with Sarah Green Carmichael. Sarah is an editor with Bloomberg Opinion, She's the previous managing editor of Ideas and Commentary at Barron's and an executive editor at the Harvard Business Review, where she hosted the HBR IdeaCast. She's been writing on business, finance, leadership, and related fields for a a while now and has a special expertise in gender issues, which is, I think, what first attracted me to a lot of your work. Sarah, welcome and thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm really excited to speak with you because recently I saw a piece that you just did for Bloomberg on COVID-19 exploding the myth that women opt out. And it was such a fascinating piece of work. And there's so much great information in here. I wanted to talk about a lot of the things that you bring up there. In addition to just really how how COVID has impacted women's careers in a more broader sense. I guess the the big idea here was that women aren't opting out. They're being forced out as a result of just not being able to sustain work and family and all of the other things that women take care of. So I'd love to just hear you talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So for me, what really crystallized this was the um, jobs report we saw at the end of September, where a million people dropped out of the workforce, meaning they stopped looking for work. And 80% of those people were women. And there's long been this debate about how much women opt out, voluntarily decide to dial back their careers and spend time with their families and how much that might explain why we don't see more women at the top of organizations. And I've always been skeptical of that data, but to me, this was like the opt-out debate on steroids. I don't think that these 800,000 women suddenly were like, my career is just not that important to me right now. I'd love to be home with my kids. It really, um, to me, emphasized that the three things that we've always known drive women out of the workforce are operating in spades right now. And those three things are a failure of public policy. So lack of access to affordable childcare, for example, espouses, usually husbands who are not doing their fair share of the childcare and housework. And then in the third is inflexible corporations. So women asking things like, hey, could I work 40 hours a week instead of 50 or 60? And companies being like, nah, So I think those three things have always explained why women drop out of the workforce. But I think right now what we're seeing is those are dialed up to 11 in a lot of cases because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you mentioned the idea that women are 80% of the people dropping out of the workforce are suddenly like, 
hey, it seems like a really good idea to just stop working right now in the middle of a global pandemic where likely your healthcare is tied to your job and that couldn't be more important right now. And so it's mind-boggling that this is happening and yet I'm hearing about companies that are trying to be flexible. I guess a lot of it probably depends on your job, on your sort of maybe the level of your job. And are you somebody whose job easily converted to work from home and therefore you might have a little more flexibility? What about the women who still have to go to work? I don't know how that's working in families where there are young children and daycare is closed. What are those women doing? Yeah, for those women, they're really in a tough spot because, as you mentioned, women who can work from home or women who are working in like big knowledge firms, um, consulting firms, financial firms, those firms have a lot of money and resources and they are using them by and large to help their working parents doing things like, oh, boosting your emergency child care benefit. Some of them are even trying to help parents make their own learning pods. They're actually getting into the business of finding health care for their employees. But women who are not lucky enough to be at those kinds of deep-pocketed firms are in a very different situation. Lots of them are having to just cobble together solutions with other families. Lots of them are trying to tag team with their husbands um, or partners and say, okay, I can be home from 6 a.m. to noon, and then you take over. But if you are a woman who works in like an emergency room, or you are a woman who works um, in an Amazon warehouse, that doesn't apply to you. You have set hours that you really do need to be there. And for women with resources, a lot of the women that I have talked to are just throwing money at the problem. You can still hire a private nanny if you have the money. You just have to hope that she's being cautious with her COVID precautions that she's taking. For women with fewer resources, it really is a crisis of unprecedented proportions. Yeah, absolutely. Even when you mentioned hiring a private nanny, like even people who do very well and make a good living, that's still a huge expense. Um, So you can actually be doing very well and still not be able to maybe afford a solution that will enable you to keep working. Kind of alarming. It is alarming. And I think that from a financial perspective, the worst thing you can do is drop out of the workforce, unfortunately, because that not only do you lose the earnings that you would have earned, but you also then, it's harder to get back into the workforce. You forego any retirement contributions you would have made during that time. You really take that your average earnings down to zero for whatever, however many years you're out of the workforce. So even if you are paying your entire salary to that nanny, you are still coming out ahead. It's just that you are doing so at the expense, not only of your entire salary, but also all the mental health that it takes out of you to keep working through a pandemic, to know that your whole salary is going so that someone else can take care of your kids. And I think that is one reason a lot of women don't choose to make that choice because there are costs that are not just financial costs. There are real emotional costs. Um, There might be costs to your marriage and you also still have the sort of feeling that women tend to have, which is I'm both being a bad mother and I'm being a bad worker and I just want to be good at something. And that's that's really wearing on its own. Just never mind all the other stuff. Just having that feeling when you wake up and feeling that way when you go to bed. 
really sucks the life out of what you're doing and probably not doing as badly as you think you're doing, but still. Yeah. Women set very high standards for ourselves. Yeah. And when we don't meet them, we are exhausted and disappointed in ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to dig into those three factors that you mentioned. One of them was public policy. Now, what are some of the changes that we could be making at a public policy level that would make it easier for women to not opt out, but to stay in the workforce? Yeah, there's really two that would be a huge deal, I think. One is paid parental leave for both partners. If you are having a kid with a partner, both partners should be able to take paid time from the workforce. The U.S. continues to be the only rich nation that doesn't offer some form of guaranteed paid maternity leave. We're making some progress on this issue, but not nearly enough. And the fact is that other countries have had this for decades now. So I I think, you know, in countries that do have paid maternity leave, that women take that time and then they come back to work. And in the U.S., what you typically see is women take as little time as possible if they're going to come back to work because it's not paid and they can't afford it. And I think when you are thinking about how quickly you can come back to work, it starts this chain of thoughts that really set you on a path of being like, was work worth it? If I have to get back there somehow in six weeks or something, can I do that? And I think that is when that calculation begins to start. The second thing really is affordable childcare. Infant care in the U.S. is particularly expensive. So that care for the first year or two of a child's life is a huge cost for a lot of families. And that's another sort of inflection point. If you look at countries like Israel and Sweden, where they have subsidized affordable daycare for kids, the female labor force participation rate in those countries is much higher than in the United States. So I think if you could really do some kind of paid parental leave, both for men and women, regardless of who's actually having a kid, and combine it with some real affordable childcare and daycare, I think you would really see a big change because it would change the financial calculus and it would take a lot of pressure off these families that someone really needs to be at home because there's just not another solution. Mm-hmm. What's, when we talk about paid parental leave, what seems to be effective in places maybe like Sweden and Israel where this is effective? Is it those that six weeks or 10 weeks immediately after, or is it six months to be home with a new child? So there's a debate about this. And I think where I am aware of the research coming down on is that six months is really great. If you go longer than six months, which some countries do, which is hard for us to even imagine in the U.S., then you start to see the parents starting to lose some of their workforce skills. They, you do still see them like starting to lose some of their earning power if you take more than six months off. Mm-hmm. Less than six months seems to maybe have some negative impacts on the kids. So I think you know, here in the U.S., it's, we'd be happy to have eight weeks of paid guaranteed leave. But actually what would be best is if you could do like four to six months that I think is the best sort of happy medium for both parents and kids. Okay. So four to six months is like the sweet spot. It sounds yeah. like, yeah, yeah, that sounds awesome. And why do you, why don't we have these policies? Like Americans, who, 
who's opposed to that? It sounds like it's hard to be opposed to. And of course it has to, somebody has to pay for these things. So is it, are we like hesitant to raise taxes to a level that would support policies like this? I think that's part of it. So the U.S. has a pretty stripped bare social safety net in all kinds of ways, not just this, right? So it's part of that bigger picture. And now we also tend to look at the decision to have kids as a kind of lifestyle choice, like it's your personal hobby. Whereas other countries, I think, are more comfortable saying, no, this is the future of our country. These are future voters. These are future workers. We need some level of population replacement if we're going to keep going. And in some ways, the U.S., we have, you know, a very... For the most part, people have wanted to immigrate here. Our birth rate is pretty low, like relative to our population growth, because we have so many people historically who've wanted to move here and make a life here. So maybe we're a little bit more insulated from some of those pressures. But no, I think it's really a cultural thing. We look at this through the lens of personal responsibility. And the narrative is that if you can't juggle work and family, your personal choice is whether to work or opt out. But it's really a much bigger systemic societal choice that we're all being subjected to. Which is so true. And I think reading your article was really eye-opening for me because opt-out is a common phrase that's used to describe like, oh, I'm going to have some children and opt out. Um, But you argue that it's not an option at all and that women are doing that because they've run out of options. I think it's how you put it. And as I read that, I was like, oh my gosh. Yes. (laughs) That's so true. I just, even having done that myself, just quite never thought about it that way. It is what it is. And I'm going to make this choice to do that when really it is a function of being out of options. And that's what you do is stay home. So that was so eye-opening to me. I think just the way you put that. The other, one of the other factors you mentioned is corporations that are not flexible, don't have flexible policies that allow women to do, women and men, I should say, take care of things at home and children and households and still be seen as effective on the job. What can we do to change that? Or who's doing that? Who does have those and is doing that well? Anybody? Yeah, I think I think that this is one of those areas where we really need it's a chicken and the egg problem, because if we have more, if we see more senior executives with kids who are taking time to take care of their kids and who are being open about I'm leaving today at three because my kid has a soccer game and I want to see it as opposed to just quietly slipping out the door. I got to got to go to a meeting or a dentist appointment or something and concealing what they're doing. Then it makes it okay for other people to do that too. Because I, I think one of the challenges is this deeply ingrained cultural notion of the ideal worker, right? The ideal worker is someone who has no family ties, who has no outside pressures, who's totally available to work 24-7. And that pressure falls especially heavy, heavily on men. And when men violate that norm, they get even more blowback than women do. Like it's anticipated that women aren't going to go for that. And women suffer all kinds of effects from that assumption. People assume you're not as committed to the job at the outset, no matter what your personal life is like. 
Men face something different, which is that they are assumed to be ideal workers until they express a desire for caregiving. And then the pushback is you're not even a real man. You're like not a manly man if you're spending your time on that. So I think this is changing because I think there have been decades of people who have pushed against this. And I think especially now we're seeing people like millennial fathers are not interested in playing this game. They really want to be there for their kids. And I think we will see it, but it is more than a corporate policy. It's really about pushing back on this idea that you can judge how you are as a person by how hard you work or how much you work. So I think you're right. I think we are starting to see that change, starting to see that change, but maybe among people, not necessarily at the corporate level. And so maybe there's some catching up to be done there, but hopefully the change that we're seeing culturally can impact those corporate policies and make some change there. So interesting, just the idea that like the ideal worker and the pressure on men, because a lot of this conversation is around the pressure on women. But I think you're right. We're all experiencing these different pressures and and we need to, the the solution to this problem is a conversation involving very much both men and women to get to something that's going to work for everybody. And, and speaking of work for everybody, the third factor that you mentioned is the fact that women shoulder so much more of the burden at home. And you cited the McKinsey 2020 Women in the Workplace report. I love that McKinsey has been doing this kind of research for years. It's fascinating to like see the difference over the years of the data they're collecting. But the question was, who is taking care of the household during COVID-19? What stuck out to me is that the response of, I share responsibilities equally with my partner, was selected by 44% of women, but 72% of men. And that is, that's a huge difference and can't pop, like numerically cannot possibly be true. And so that just struck me as very funny that there's some huge disconnect between perception and reality there. Yes. And it's interesting because this is not just the McKinsey survey. The New York Times also did a survey that found very similar results. A majority of husbands, about half of husbands were saying, oh yeah, we're splitting the homeschooling duties equally. And only 3% of women agreed. And this actually has really deep roots because if you look at things like the American Time Use uh, study by um, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, you look at other studies that look at how men and women use their time, men do tend to overestimate the amount of time they put into caregiving and household tasks. And we know this because when you actually ask people to keep a time diary where they are recording every day, okay, I spend 15 minutes on laundry and I spend 20 minutes on washing dishes or whatever, women's recollections of how much time they spent are very accurate. Men's recollections tend to creep up. And I don't know why that is. I don't know if it just feels longer to men and they're actually spending. But the challenge is that women end up doing a lot that is not really seen or appreciated or visible or counted, even by their families. And and men may have an inflated sense of how much they're actually pitching in. And I don't even know the word pitching in because it makes it sound like they're just living in this house where they actually optional. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. They're just babysitting. And so they're parenting. 
But it is something that I think couples need to address because it is one of the factors that really contributes to women's career pressure. There was a study, it's from 2003, so it's a little of an older study now. These trends have not changed in decades. Two-thirds of women who opted out of the workforce said that their husbands were an important secondary factor. And they said things like, my husband has always supported me. He's always said, you can do whatever you want, but he's never there to pick up any load. So these women would say things to their husbands like, I have to be at work at 8.30 on Thursdays. So that's the day you have to do the daycare drop-off. And their husbands would just forget week after week. Or the husbands would be like, honey, you go girl. Like you do what you want. But then they're not helping with the meal planning. They're not doing the laundry. So it, it became a thing where... That emotional support, I think, was sincere, but unless it translates into actual tangible support, it's not going to have the result of women staying in the workforce. So what is the solution there? It seems like it's a communication thing among couples and families and just, I don't know, setting the expectation of... I think this is in some ways the toughest of the three problems, right? Because if you want a new public policy, you can take to the streets, you can get angry, you can call your senator. If you want your co- like a company that has better work-life balance, you can shop around for different companies. Talented people have options. But once you are married and have kids with someone, you are like stuck with them in a way that you are not like, you, you don't, you love them. You don't want to like, treat them like you would a senator that you're angry with or a boss that you hate. You want to have a good relationship with them. So in some ways, this is the most fraught. And I will just say there are some books out there that are really helpful on this. There's Tiffany Jafu has a book called Drop the Ball. Jancy Dunn has a book called How Not to Hate Your Husband After Kids. And And I think the lesson from books like that for me is that first, you really need to be explicit about who's doing what. Make a complete list of all the household chores from folding laundry to kids, doctor's appointments to cleaning the gutters and just really write down who's doing what. And that way you make your invisible work visible to your spouse. And you might also realize that there are some things that they're doing that maybe you hadn't appreciated. Men tend to do seasonal tasks, outdoor tasks that happen like once or twice a year or once or twice a week. So they mow the lawn, they clean the gutters. They call the electrician. It's just that women tend to be more responsible for the stuff that has to happen every day. So I think that's sort of a place to start. And then it's a little bit of just like ruthless staying on that path. If you have agreed that it's not your job anymore to unload the dishwasher, do not do it. Just don't do it. Leave those clean dishes in there for two weeks if you have to. Like, just don't do it. That's hard. That's the kind of thing that like really gets under our skin. (laughs) And I'm one of four kids in the family where I grew up and my mom went on strike at one point. I think I was probably like 14 and we just laugh about it so much now. But at the time she was just fed up and not so much, I think, with my dad, but with us kids, which I think is another really important factor here. Like your kids can carry some of the load here and should. And so literally one day she just said, okay, uh, that's it. I'm done. 
I'm not cooking anything anymore. I'm not picking up after anybody. And she posted instructions on the washing machine. Here's how this thing works. And we were all like, wait, what? And so I just remember like cooking pancakes for my siblings for dinner and everybody down reading the instructions on the washing machine, turn this dial and put, and it's a source of family jokes now, but she made her point and things change after that because the house got really messy and there were dishes piled up in the sink and she pretended not to notice. And I just can't even imagine how hard that was for her to just walk on by that. But she cooked dinner for herself and my dad during that time. And we were all like, that looks so good. (laughs) And we were on our own, but boy, did it make the point. And hopefully people don't have to go on strike in their own homes to make a point like that. But Dang, it really worked. <laughs> That's an amazing story. And I can't imagine the strength of will it must have taken her to walk by the dish, the sink full of dishes. Um, it would have driven me crazy. But sometimes a drastic measure is required to make the points. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the, I'm always trying to look for the silver lining and something. And with COVID, I had a little bit hoped that maybe one of like our strange gifts of COVID is that we are forcing workplaces to be more flexible and they're being like pushed into accepting a level of flexibility that they weren't accommodating before as far as things like work from home policies Now everybody's working from home. And in the past, if you wanted to do that, it was like, that's not really how we do things here. FaceTime's important. We need you in the office. And now suddenly everybody's working from home all the time. And I I don't know. So my question to you is, do you think that when we return to some sense of normal, whatever that may be and whenever that may happen, that companies are willing to accept a little bit more of the flexibility that I think really helps working parents? I really hope so, because I agree with you. Work from home or flexible work policies were often looked down upon before. And now it's really hard to say to people after even eight months of doing this, and we're probably going to be doing it for another six months at least, if you've been working remotely for over a year and everything's been going fine, really the company doesn't have a leg to stand on if they're like, oh, now FaceTime is really important. So I really hope that when we come out of this, there is more support for remote work and flexible working. And I I think we will see that in part because companies have now invested in the infrastructure and they've gotten used to managing this way. So they have upgraded their video calling tools. They've upgraded their document sharing tools. They've been, they've gotten used to managing people over Slack or some similar program. So I think that once you've been doing something for a year, I think it's going to be much harder to claw it back. So I, that is a silver lining. And if you look at surveys, women are much happier with work from home than men are. Men are a little bit more itching to get back to the office. Women are like, this is great. <laughs> Keep going. And I wonder if one of the reasons that's true is because it's so much easier to get done everything you have to do if you cut out commute time altogether. 
And for me, we have four children. And yesterday, one of our kids had an orthodontist appointment. I normally work a half an hour from home. And so to get home and get that child to the orthodontist, pick them up at school, get them to the orthodontist, sit and wait, back to school, back to the office, that can wind up being a half of a day. Working from home, I was out and back in 40 minutes. And that is not even a disruption in my day. That's taking an early lunch and just go zip over and do that and come back and grab lunch and get back to what I was doing. So it's, it's just so much easier to do all of that juggling when you are right here at home. Yeah, I definitely feel the same. My commute normally is an hour and a half each way. So I'd estimate I'm now probably putting in an extra hour at work every day. Like a lot of people who are working from home are working longer hours and I'm in that same camp, but that still gives me two extra hours I didn't have before. And flexibility wise, if I need to clear my head after writing something or editing something, I just zip around and vacuum for 15 minutes. And then I sit right back down at my desk and I'm ready for the next thing. So I think the flexibility and the time savings have been huge for women. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And maybe, I guess we could hope there's a sense of, with the family all together, mothers, fathers, that there's, everybody is seeing all of the work that goes on all day. I think for some fathers, if you leave the home in the morning and go to work and work hard and come home at the end of the day, it's a little bit like magic that everything gets done and how it happens, but it's really not magic. There's a lot of hard work that goes into that that is being done, and maybe now people's eyes are open to, oh, wow, yeah, all that happens here during the day. That's a lot. It's funny. I was listening to an interview with a researcher early in the pandemic who'd been talking to men about what is this like now for you to be home and working from home and seeing all of this. And some of these guys were telling her, I really don't like it. (laughs) I thought of my home as this like happy, carefree place. I come home after work and everything's great. And there's dinner on the table and he's, I'm home now. And I'm like, these kids never stop shouting. Like it's what it was much more stressful than they had realized. And I think it's one, it may be one of the reasons men are not enjoying work from home as much as women. They have been maybe more sheltered from it. And, and the, the reality is jarring to them. I don't know. That is very funny. Life is messy. And <laughs> I guess they're getting a front row seat to just how messy that can be sometimes. Definitely. Um, yeah. So interesting. I was also on the opt out question, thinking about my own experience of opting out. And I was working for IBM when we started having children. And when after we had our first, I went back three days a week, which was an amazing, like, perfect arrangement, just completely loved still working and yet being home two days a week. And eventually my manager said to me, you're a headcount here, whether you're full-time or you're part-time and we have to make some cuts coming down the line. And you, if you can come back full-time, I want you on the team full-time, your job will be really safe because then I'm fully utilizing my headcount. But if you want to remain part-time, it's going to be a lot harder for me to protect that headcount. And so I've always considered like that I opted out, but at the end of the day, I went back and said, I'm going to 
take my chances here and remain part-time and let's see what happens. And sure enough, the count was cut. And so I was just thinking, gosh, I've always said that I opted out, like that that was my choice. But it wasn't at the end of the day. Certainly, it was my choice to remain part-time and take my chances with that. But really, just exactly like you mentioned in your article, it was a lack of choices that led me down that path, which, by the way, I'm really happy that I went down that path. But it it was not necessarily, a, let's see, not 100% because... I chose to do that. Personally, working the part-time schedule was really ideal. And that option, essentially, was taken off the table. So really proves your point of opting out being a, a false choice. I am so sorry that went down that way, even if it worked out okay, you know, for you in the end. That is not something a manager should ever, ever say to someone. And I think... One of the things that is hard when we talk about these issues is that it is human nature to want to give yourself a feeling of control. And I think one of the things that has been so hard about this pandemic is I don't feel like I have control over my own life right now. And I think when we talk about our career choices, we often do say things like I chose to do this or I chose to do that or we put ourselves in the driver's seat of those decisions because there is something gratifying about seeing ourselves that way rather than being like I've been buffeted about by random chance that doesn't feel good so I think some you know when I talk to other women who have had career breaks it is often that kind of conversation where they say oh yeah I decided to stay home after we had kids because my job I was working crazy hours and traveling all the time and my husband's job whatever so we just decided that I would stay home And it's always couched in that language of we just decided or this is I wouldn't have it any other way. And and I think it's also there's some degree where human nature, we can make the best of a lot of situations. But I think that women would financially be better off if they were able to take care of their kids in a way that was more supportive of also earning a wage at the same time because that would give women more financial independence and freedom. It doesn't mean you have to work full time or in a crazy high powered job, but it's good to be bringing in some income and in part because in many marriages, it makes the marriage more stable as well. It's really can be alarming to be like, Oh my God, I'm the sole breadwinner. If anything happens to me, what are we going to do? That's a lot of pressure to put on whoever the sole breadwinner is. So I think to the extent that both people in a couple are able to keep working it's generally a better outcome than if one person is completely forced to stop and then the other one feels all that that pressure on them. And now we're not even talking about single parents. They really are the ones who would benefit a huge amount from additional support at the corporate level or at the public policy level because they don't have the choice of opting out. They have to find some way to make it work. And when you say better for women financially, I always think like what's good for women financially is good for families financially. It's good for children as they grow up. So it's not just about women. It's, it's, it trickles down to a huge extent to everybody in the household and, and the family. So, Completely. Yeah. yeah. 
This has been a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for sharing all of your expertise and your journalistic experience and all the research and writing that you do is really amazing around these topics. Sarah, where can people find you and your work online? Oh, thank you. It's been so great to be here. I am findable on Bloomberg Opinion. If you just look for Bloomberg Opinion, Sarah Green Carmichael, you will find me or you can find me on Twitter at SK Green. Okay, fantastic. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Subscribe to our email list at backtobusinessconference.com for weekly job search advice. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Get a Job, Here's How podcast. You can find all the information from this episode in our show notes at www.backtobusinessconference.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please write a review so that we can reach more people. Now that you know how, go do it.